Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. happening weirdos a wonderful episode i actually went by the home of john gemberling to do one on the road and uh it was just such a fun treat one of the best improvisers and uh, comedian type people comedian type people you know what i mean he doesn't do stand-up but he's one of the funniest actor comedian writers there you go funniest acting comedian writers that i've ever seen in my life and uh just a real treat to have on the show and to be in his home and see baby toys that we talk about quite a bit uh so enjoy this episode it's brought to you by amazon you know how to do that you just click on the banner and shop like you normally would go to nerds.com go to this episode click on the banner buy something percentage goes to help katie who's probably been in some sort of accident but probably not some people sometimes people don't know that i'm joking when i say that katie's fine Anyway, here are the tour dates if you do want to come out and see me live or come to a live You Made It Weird. Currently, I'm recording uh, this from my hotel in Chicago. I'm here for Just for Laughs, and I'll be here till the 15th. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, Friday, I have a Doug Loves Movies today. And Saturday, tomorrow, I have a live You Made It Weird. So definitely come out to that. That's going to be awesome. Uh, the next uh, live show is in L.A. I'm going to be uh, Pete Holmes living at Largo. Uh, that's on the 18th of June. And uh, you can go to Largo slash, or not slash, dash LA.com for that. Then we're off to Portland for the Aladdin Theater on the June 28th, on the 28th of June. Neptune in Seattle on June 29th. We're doing a live You Made It Weird in LA on uh, July 8th. Then Tip Patina's in New Orleans on July 11th. July 12th, we're going to be in uh, Houston for Fitzgerald's. July 13th, Dallas for the Texas Theater. And then July 24th through the 28th, I'm going to be in Montreal for Just for Laughs. We're going to be doing a live You Made It Weird there as well. After that, the only day we have is another Living at Largo. That's the next one in L.A. on uh, July 30th. Check that out. Those shows are super fun, super uh, super local. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a selling point. It's really local for me, so come out to that. Uh, and enjoy the show. Enjoy John Gemberling. Thanks to everybody that's been coming out to the shows. They've been wonderful. And uh, I hope to see you guys out on the road while we continue this little tour. All right, everybody, get into it. Okay, now we're recording. <laughs> so that's the table that you used when your wife's out of town to eat like a king? Yeah. That table came with the apartment. I mean, it didn't, you know, they left. Some of the the couch and these chairs we bought from the previous tenants and then... They didn't want to move them. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then that table, I don't think, I think they just left it here. You didn't pay any cash for it? I don't think so. It looks like an antique table. It looks like a nice table. Uh, it's sort of a rickety table. I'm always interested in what people do when their spouses are out of town. Like, oh, because yeah. when I was married, not not to be, uh, you know, it's not awkward to talk about that. Uh, when I was married, it was all food related. It was like when she was gone, I was like eating peanut butter with my hands. It was never like prostitutes and cocaine. It was always just like, I can eat chunky with my fingers. And I enjoyed it so much more. Yeah, I mean, the memory that I hold on to since since we moved to L.A. Yeah. You know, Andrea got a job in New York that required her to take our baby. Wait, why? What? She's doing this show for Nickelodeon where she, like, goes around. She's a mom, and she goes around, like, in really? other moms and stuff. Yeah. That's, like, knocked up, where at the end they were like, we love that you have a baby, and we're going to use the baby in the thing. Like, oh, she's yeah, worried yeah. that it's going to hurt her career. Oh, yeah, the ending is my favorite part of that. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> 
No, never take the puppet <laughs> off. You have a puppet on I'm your hand. Oh, you're turning your phone off. How courteous. Um, uh, so she had to go out of town. This was last October. We should say that your wife is Andrea Rosen, who's very, very funny. One of my favorite people. Yes. Who I'd love to have on the show. Great. Yes. We can set that up. We'll set it up. Yeah. You have her number? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) My wife? (laughs) You're the most fun. Can I point out that I was parking on your street and I had to call you and you had to tell me where to park and just the image of you in this big bay window in your shorts and your t-shirt and just kind of guiding me into a spot was one of the funniest things that's happened to me this week. Oh, good. I wasn't sure if it was you. I was looking at you across the thing, and I, I thought it was you. Yeah. But I thought it could also have been like a manny woman <laughs> type of person. A manny? Like, you know, like a, a mannish. Oh, a mannish woman. Yeah. Well, I have a feminine quality. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, yeah. I'm shaven, I do. <laughs> we're fair, we're soft. We're soft. Uh, I guess the cheap joke is that we look like lesbians, I guess. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Do you get that? I I do... People don't tell me that. I think I look like that. Well, you can grow the scruff, though. Yeah. That's a man's scruff. Yeah. I can't grow that scruff. No? Nothing? 34. It'll come in, but in, like, an embarrassing pattern. Right. It'll look like someone was drawing a man with a beard and, like, quit. (laughs) (laughs) They drew me first, and then they started putting in the beard, and they're like, this looks stupid. And it was very erratic, and they just stopped. So, uh, Andrew Rosen is in New York occasionally with your infant. Yes. For a show. Yes. So she went, she was going, it was like a week or two that I was here by myself. And it was basically the first time I was by myself since he was born. He's almost two now. Yeah. Uh, Wow. So they left. She went, you see that kitchen there? She went and bought that kitchen at Ikea for Christmas. That little The kid kitchen. kitchen. Yeah. I didn't know they sold kid stuff at Ikea. They do, you know. Is there a whole kid section where the kids walk around like couples and pretend they're married? (laughs) No. <laughs> That's what I, every girlfriend I've ever gone to. I, I think like, they what have if some limited, yeah. Oh, yeah, you go to Ikea, you're like, this would be great. And you yeah. get stuff home and you're like, this is It's just disgusting. a project. Well, this is Ikea. Good for this you. This is Ikea, yeah. Rich, got some good stuff at Ikea. Rich Summer had the same thing and that's where he put his board games. Do you know him? Uh, I do. And I also had that same piece, me and Matt McCarthy, when we lived in uh, New York. We had this. We didn't have two of them. Right. But that's a good choice. That's the comedian's choice. We had a great IKEA experience when we first moved here. Yes. It was like, usually you go crazy at IKEA, you stress out. Right. But Odin, our baby, was sleeping. I thought you were going to say Bob Odenker. <laughs> Your baby's name is Odin? His name is Odin. Oh my God. That's yeah. a great name. Yeah. Awesome. Keep going. I'm sorry. He was sleeping in the car, so we had to go in one at a time. She went in and made some some preliminary uh, notes, yes. and then I went in, and then we all went in together and made our purchases. So it was like we weren't rushing ourselves. We, you know, we spent a good like three yes. or four hours in the parking lot. Yes. Just <laughs> Do you go the one in Burbank? Out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so um, sweet. Yeah, it was a good. Experience. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it is interesting. I was going to ask you about babyhood in general, but like, but finish what you were saying. I feel like okay. Yeah. So she bought this because she wanted to give him a kitchen for Christmas. She was obsessed with the idea of giving him like, yeah a kitchen to play with. Yeah, she likes to play. I don't know. She she liked that idea and he enjoys it. Sure. He also so, has an ironing board. He does. Which yeah. I'm I'm only noticing. Look, I'm as progressive as the next guy, but like an ironing board in a kitchen. If my father were here, he'd be like, "Where's the fire truck and the gun?" Yeah. You know what well, I mean? we have the fire truck too. Oh yeah. Okay. 
Well, um, keeping it gender neutral. You're they just having bought, fun. The Nickelodeon people, for, for the show, they, did, they bought the little ironing board to use as a segment. And uh, Andrea wanted to get rid of it because uh, it was just extra stuff. And I said it makes the perfect side table perfect yes it does side table. and so it's a funny it's a it. funny side table as well it's a child size ironing it's board. it's a little pink child size ironing board that comes with an iron but mostly it's used <laughs> what if the iron was sold separately what a bunch of dicks <laughs> just give us the goddamn iron <laughs> and those little crumply shirts yes <laughs> free crumpled shirts <laughs> But mostly that ironing board just gets used to hold uh, weed and drinks while yeah. watching TV. Yes. Um, so the, so to keep you on the kitchen. I'm sorry. I keep it. I'm excited to see. Well, it. it's just an element of this story. So yeah. they, I dropped them off at the airport. Then, sidebar, I watched a, a possum die in the road for like ten minutes. <laughs> you watched it as life left the possum. Yes. Well, so it wasn't like quick. It was. It was having a time. Yeah, they, well, they were like late or maybe going to be late for the flight. So I sort of pulled over near the airport in case they didn't make it. They ended up making it. But this possum, I I turned this corner and it's this residential street and this possum is just dying in the road. Like it's just been hit. No. And there's sort of like like bits of gut and gore just like on the street. A little trail. But it looked good. Like it was like sort of like a fox-like possum. It looked good and vulnerable and... Wait, what do you mean it looked good? Like it was a pretty creature. It was a handsome creature. Yeah. Just to make it worse that it's on its way out. It was it was adding glory to the to the world. It looked like what like Disney would have done as a possum. Like you know how the I was very attracted to the Maid Marian Fox in the Robin Hood oh, movie. Oh, good choice. I'm a little more on the nose. I was a Jessica Rabbit boy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... Yeah, so obvious. But that was later. Yeah, that is that is later. Um, like, Robin Hood was like... I was like toddler when Robin Hood... How old are you? I'm 32. Yeah. Um, so we're... I'm two years older than you. I'm trying to... I don't really have a memory of Robin Hood, but I was turned on by a lot of weird... Yeah. Bugs Bunny... Like, it's a cliche. I forget what movie it's from, but when Bugs Bunny would dress up like a girl, I was like, okay. <laughs> I was always attracted to Penny in Inspector yeah, Gadget. Yeah, good choice. And I remember being like, you know, four or five years old. Yeah. And I was always... I, I always was attracted to her. Like, they... Her and Brain, the dog, yeah. always ended up getting, like, gassed. <laughs> and they would sort of swoon. She'd be like, ah, and, like, fall unconscious to the floor. And that turned me on as a kid. <laughs> Penny get gassed and fall unconscious. Yes. I kind of understand what you're saying. It's, it's a weird, dark childhood memory, but I get that. Yeah. The vulnerability of Penny being gassed yeah. and making that noise. Yeah. You know what I realized later in life was when, when Bugs Bunny would see something that turned him on, he would become erect, like in the air. You know what I'm talking about? His feet would leave the ground mm-hmm. and he'd become parallel to the ground. You know, like, like a diving board. Do you know, remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. He so would he'd, hover? He'd get off the ground. He'd, yeah. he'd be so turned on that he'd go into the air and like become stiff. And it, I, I was like 32 when I realized that was a dick joke. Like your dick gets hard like that. Yeah. And they made Bugs Bunny get hard like that. But it wasn't just Bugs Bunny. I remember Other a lot of cartoons. But it's a boner joke. It's completely inappropriate, I guess, you know, yeah. for little kids. But we didn't get it. Yeah. That one's for the parents. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Their tongue falls out of their mouth. The eyes pop out. Yeah, but none of that corresponds to your dick. Like, your balls don't become, like, 
floppy or something. But it's very sort of predatory. Like there was that wolf that would like, yeah, like hyperventilate. He was panting, and yeah. his like tongue would fall out of his mouth. Yeah, 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 the yeah, floor. yeah, yeah. You're right. Even the tongue, the <laughs> it's like a weird predatory sort of thing. Be lurking and like that's what we're supposed to do when we see girls. It was middle-aged men writing these cartoons yeah. for us. And they, they, were having fun. they were drug- They were on drugs. And Any stuff. girl in Mad Magazine turned me on, I'll say that. The way they drew girls. Yes. Especially the more simple the girl was. If the cleavage looked like two C's or two U's, mm. you know what I mean? I was just like, yeah, great, love it. I love the super detailed Mad Magazine drawings. The one that's like the pimply face clerk. Yeah. Or like whenever they would like vomit, there'd be like fish bones. Yeah, yeah, crazy yeah, stuff yeah, in yeah. The vomit. I totally know what you're talking about. Um, Did we put a pin in the... Uh, no. No, yeah, go. So I watched this... Po- well... <laughs> <laughs> The possum is dying, and I had this moment where I was like, this is the, I'm the only person witnessing this death. Cars would whiz by it, and its fur would sort of like blow peacefully in the wind from the cars. The crows were getting louder and louder, and I started to see them circling. Getting ready. Yeah, it would have these like little hitching breaths every once in a while. And then it stopped moving, and I... Drove away. That's a, that's, a, that's just a detail of the story. It no, I get it. <laughs> well, there is a little bit of poetry to that. It sounds like a short film. Dropping your baby and your wife off at the airport, and then you just pull off for something that's just an obligation. Like, you're just making sure they get on the plane. And then you witness what's really happening around us all the time, which is life and death. And something kind of uh, morosely beautiful. I mean, like, the thing was dying, and the crows are assembling, and it's grotesque, and it's certainly morbid. But did you feel beauty, or did you feel disgust, or did you feel nothing? I felt the beauty, and I felt a sort of pang of sadness that I was the only thing that was bearing witness to this creature's final moments. Attention must be paid. And of course I had the moment where I was like, should I... I was tense because cars were driving very close to it. Sure. And I had a moment, should I like run over this thing to put it out of its misery? I thought you were going to say, should I take it to the vet? And you're like, <laughs> no, should I get out and no boot way. stomp it the for a while? The vet does not want that. <laughs> <laughs> the vet does not want me to show up with a dying possum going, I'm not, I don't want to pay for anything. <laughs> they would slide it into the incinerator with you watching and yeah. be like, we did everything we could do. <laughs> they would throw it in the, they would stuff it into that hazardous material box. <laughs> You can still hear it moving. Yeah. You just clipped it with all these used syringes. It's just shuffling in there with the syringes. But something in one of the syringes gave it some adrenaline. So it was like, you really fucked it now. Yeah. You should have left it on the road. Oh my god. Um, so then you come home and you're alone. Is that. Is... I drove to uh, a friend's house and uh, bought some weed from him. Your first thing. Yeah. And then I drove to GameStop and bought a video game. <laughs> and then I drove to Carl's Jr. And uh, you were living it up. I was living it up. They have a twenty-four hour drive-through, like two blocks from this house. And what game did you get? I think it was Far Cry Three. Okay, I haven't played it. That's apocalyptic, right? No, no. There's an expansion for it that's apocalyptic. Uh, is that the one with the punk guy on the cover? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's supposed to be great. It was good. I had some problems with it, but it was. I'm. 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 I'm very critical. I understand. Yeah. Are you the only game I'm playing is Bioshock? Are you playing Bioshock? I am. I'm also playing Minecraft. Is that similar? No. 
at what is Minecraft. I was just picturing Minesweeper, and I'm like, why would you play that if there's other games? Uh, I did play Minesweeper a lot as We a kid. all did, yeah. Um, Minecraft is like you dig and mine for materials, and then you build... More like SimCity? Uh, a little bit, except you're actively placing every block. Oh. So you have more control over the design of things. More like Lego than just like yes. you clock down a police yeah. station. You can also build rudimentary machinery. There's like a circuitry oh, system. Oh, I've heard about that. You can yeah. build machines. Yeah. So that's like when I was a kid, I remember the smart kids would play with like the electricity kit. It's like, I'm making like currents. Yeah. And I'm like, I just shit in your pool. <laughs> <laughs> like I was the dumb kid. My dad would always buy me those kits, but I never... Really? I was just throwing out a bunch of shit, and I yeah. found it, and I was like, I should, I bet I would like this. Now you would, do you find now as a grown-up, you understand, especially with a kid, you understand what everyone was trying to do, which was teach you to be curious, teach you to, like, learn and absorb and be energized by the world. But, like, it just didn't make any sense when I was a little kid. Yes, however, my father is the type of person that is so, he's, like, knows so much about history, so much about art and art history. Yeah. Uh, he's an artist, and he just has, like, an encyclopedic... He he just is that stuff, you know? He had, like, a pretty bad childhood and, and just was... Just is entirely, you know, his... Sort of the things that he knows... Yes. ...and is working on. So What he, do you mean by that? Like, he, he's made up of all this sort of knowledge... Like book yeah, I mean, or... he 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 says he was like born with knowledge of Japanese history and art history, like he was like some Japanese feudal person in a past life. Oh, he believes that. Yeah, I he met never... your dad. Your dad's yeah. a trip. Yeah, yeah, he's like a cool guy. He said, he, I mean, he has claimed that he remembers his birth, that he, up until a certain age remembered every single moment of his life in a continuous stream that was playing in his head. What? And it, until he wrote it all down, then it stopped. So it was always looping in his head, past and future? Or was it just the past? Just the past. Just everything up until but he his could access starting it, at his birth. Like photographically could access his, his memories. I mean... I, from the way he tells it, it was sort of burdensome because it was just always running in his yeah. head. Yeah. That's some Scientology shit. Was he, like, what I'm learning about, I'm reading about Scientology, what I learned was that, like, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of, like, acid-dropping hippies got really turned on by L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics. And Dianetics was that thing where it was, like, one of the things they tried to do was remember your birth mm-hmm. and get over the trauma of your birth. Right. Was your dad hip to that, or was he just freestyling? No, he never did drugs. I mean, <clears throat> he, he, he has done drugs in recent years, but he never did Oh, I just mean, was he, he never... hip to Scientology, or was he hip to, like, no. reading that sort of stuff? No, I mean he he was fairly sheltered in Pennsylvania until he moved to New York. He wasn't always in. When I think about New York, I think about guys like your dad always being. In oh, he New came York. to New York for college. Okay, uh, and I guess he would come in little drips and drabs. But How did he remember his birth? How did he do that? I don't know. I he mean, just did. <laughs> I mean, it was just always something that was there. It wasn't like he was trying to remember his he birth. He didn't uncover a repressed memory of his birth. He was just like, yeah, that was my birth. I remember that. Yeah. Well, he says that he always had these dreams of, like, pressure and this, like, light tunnel and, like, a, an intense nausea feeling. Wow. And then he put it together. I guess he put it together that that was his birth. 
I don't know. He could be full of shit, though, for all I know. You know like, Isn't that troubling? When I, whenever I hear things like that, as much as I want to believe him, I'm also like, or is he full of shit? But I so badly want to think that your dad remembers his birth. Yeah. Because that's imp- it's very impressive. But so many people have like these memories, past life memories. And you're like, well, you could have just been having a dream, too. Right. You, you know, well, to that, and I'm sorry, it's always so obvious what books I'm reading when I do this podcast, but one of the, it's, a, it's called Inside Scientology. It's very interesting. And L. Ron Hubbard was really big into past lives. And one of the things he would do is he would be like, John, I want you to come and, uh, you know, navigate my ship. Mm-hmm. And he'd like a, a boat, like a big vessel. And he'd be like, I've never done that before. And he's like, but you've had billions of past lives. One of them, you were a, a ship person you were a captain and he'd be like you're full of shit and he'd be like let's go and i would like hypnotize you or whatever he was doing help you remember that you were a captain at one point and then you would this is these are the people that left the church by the way that are giving these accounts saying and then i would go back up to the deck and navigate with confidence i'm not saying they were like good at it but they were confident that they could figure it out either from the suggestion of some guy lying and you uncovering a false memory like a vivid false manufactured memory or more fun world, you were a sailor and you did you did remember like a past life. So the contention is that if past lives are real and we've all lived past lives, therefore every single one of us would have had careers in the <laughs> maritime industry. Yeah, that's a big buy. That's a big buy. I mean, I guess I don't I don't even know how to run the numbers on that. I, I wouldn't know either. But that, you know, cult leaders are just those types of people that can be like, you were a sailor. You will remember. You know what I mean? Like engaging people. I mean, modern ship navigation has only been in existence for a few hundred years. You right? do know how to crunch the numbers. There's only so many years that those <laughs> types of boats have existed. But I mean, like, I guess you could have been a pirate or something. Let me put it. Let, let me put it more simply, because we'll never get to the bottom of that because we're not involved. But do you be, <laughs> do you believe your father when he said he had past life? Keeping in mind you're in a safe place. <laughs> I have no idea. No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that he is privy to knowledge that other people aren't privy to. I have no idea. Yeah, you know. Right. I mean, people have. You know. People have all kinds of notions. I, I, I don't sure. know. I don't. I'm not. I'm not inclined to believe somebody just because they're convinced of their experiences. Would you like your father be interested? What if somebody? What if I were the type of person and I'm not? That was like I could help you unlock your past lives. Would you be like that's baloney? Or I'm just going to use you have an amazing. You're one of the best improvisers I've ever seen in my life. Would you be just concerned that you're improvising some sort of fake memory? I don't even know how to. I mean, the circumstances under which somebody's offering to take me to a past life, I wouldn't seek that out, I don't think, you know? So if somebody's coming up to me, like, in a mall or something and saying, I've got this... (laughs) At a kiosk? Yeah. um, I can do that. I mean, I guess it would just depend on... I don't... I don't know how I would be convinced that I was... How can you be... Con- I mean, it's I just... Know. It's crazy to me, you know? You have to have some sort of information verified. Like, people with ghost stories and stuff are like, the ghost told me her name was Genevieve, and she died in 1803. And then you look it up, and you're like, someone named Genevieve drowned. It's always a drowning. Drowned in the well. Or if you had a past life, you could go like, <laughs> my name was Cassius, and I was a carpenter <laughs> in Gloucester. You could look it up. And he kind of looks like you. I don't know. What the but fuck? I don't know. But how? That's how is that proof? I mean, I, I, 
Well, how would you know that if, if, if you felt very strongly that your name was Cassius and you were a carpenter and then you found a carpenter named Cassius, wouldn't that be a type of proof to you? I bet subjectively it would feel like proof. My basic rule of thumb for things like that is if there were enough... You always hear about these examples that are compelling, right? Yes. You hear less about the millions of examples that weren't at all compelling. Yeah, just failures. And if enough of these examples were compelling to actually be compelling to scientists or, 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 or people that were, you know, uh, uh, wanted to compile that data, yeah, it would be out there, you know? Right. It would be taken as something more than just uh, a trick. Sure. You know? I wonder... When have you ever experienced in improv? Uh, I know that's kind of a jump, but like I'm thinking about fabricating past lives experiences. Have you ever had that phenomenon of once you kind of assign yourself doctor, like almost like in a dream? Like, have you ever noticed in a dream you'll know more things or like you'll be freer to use the jargon of a lawyer or a doctor or a captain in the similar way that when you're in improv? The second I, like, make you a surgeon, you might give yourself permission to act like a surgeon, and then you kind of free up and, and end up impressing yourself? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I, knew it was I, a I, jump. I, I, I More, like, more jargon occurs to you, but it's stuff that I already know. Like, if I'm playing a ship captain, yeah. I'll probably... I'll be thinking of more jargon, but it's stuff I already know. I don't... Right. I don't know that I've... I'm not necessarily drawing from what I would consider to be the river of the unconscious ah, <laughs> at that point. The river of the unconscious! Sometimes if I play an obese character, I'll like start to breathe really heavy and I'll hyperventilate a little bit. Is that right? I'll get really lightheaded. Well, there is something about... that. You have to have some... Ex- I know you have some experiences doing improv. There is a little bit of a like a, like a tribal... Um, What's the word? Not a seance, but almost like a ritual to good improv where you everybody gets in a zone and, like you say, playing a fat guy, you start to hyperventilate or people really commit to things. And like these, not spiritual, but very like serendipitous, wonderful... I think that's one of the joys of improv is when five, six people merge into this thing that was very special to everyone that witnessed it. Totally. Do you feel like a kind of a churchy feel sometimes when you're doing good improv? Um, or a sacred. Field. I mean, one of our original groups, Monkey Dick, we would do this organic opening that was, I mean, looked very stupid. People, the audiences then seemed to be impressed by it, but it was just us doing this like sound and movement where we would come together and, you know, it, it would be very synergistic or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm so inclined to not. Think of things as sacred or holy, mm. you know? Like, I feel like the best improv I've done is just when I loved everybody in the group and we were just having a good time together off stage and on stage. You it, know? The good show was an extension of some good love together backstage. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 those those uh serendipitous moments never seemed crazy to me because I knew that we were all sort of working on the same page. Right. You got to a good <clears throat> level and then good things happened. When you say love, what do you mean? You mean supporting and 
giving them the benefit of the doubt or having their back or what did or I say when I love loved, loved, everybody. loved everybody on the team or do you just re- love as in the relationships like you know love them as people and you got to get that Ah, you dick! Don't make me look like a dick. Oh, you gotta get that. Oh, Who is that? God, oh, it's an eight hundred number. You gotta get it. My phone only rings if you call me twice in a row. So oh. I was looking to make sure it wasn't a uh, an emergency. Yeah. And now I'm gonna turn it off. Check it out. I am so sorry. Yeah. And we don't edit it out. You, you gotta like, get those eight hundred numbers. You asshole! <laughs> you magical all day asshole! I will destroy you in a fit of rage. <laughs> Um, so go. I met you. I was interested in you saying that you loving your other cast members. You just mean you were liking them as people. You were enjoying them as people. Yeah, the best. The best. I mean, there were turbulent times, which we also did good work in. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was in a sketch group with Curtis Gwynn, yep. John Daly, and Brett Gelman. Which was sort of a short-lived group called The Brighter Side. Uh Uh-huh. And that was... It was... We didn't do the show for that long. Like, we we came together, we wrote the show, and we had... We we ended up doing sort of a limited run because Daly and Gelman got hired uh, out here to come do the uh, Nick Cannon's... (laughs) Oh, (laughs) right. I remember that, yeah. Um... And then it sort of, they came back after that, but then it sort of didn't get off the ground again. And that was definitely like a witchy experience because we were all at very weird times in our life. Hmm. I was like going through sort of like a heartbroken, sort of depressed period. Mm -hmm. I was also exercising a lot. I was in the best shape of my life, Uh but I was also like... Just smoking and sort of like sighing myself to sleep every night. Oh, God. And Curtis was like, he was like sort of withdrawn and and going through a period. And everybody was just, I can't even remember what the specifics all were, but we were all going through. Have you ever had those periods in your life when you just sort of like, you're just rubbing your face all day and be like, oh, like, what? What are we doing? What is this? Just like everything, you're just like, the sunlight is too bright, and you're just like... We were all going through that. You're so all that, was, watching possums die. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everybody's just seeing yeah. these little horror shows. Everything was like an oh, fuck. Yeah. Uh, and so the whole show was like this dark, weird show, which was really good at the time. Mm. and But it was sort of like dark sorcery. Like, it wasn't like... It wasn't necess- it wasn't like the holy synergy type of thing you're talking about, but it was it was sort of marinated in this sort of like yes. dark period that we were all going through, and that was like a wild moment in time. And then those guys came back from LA, and we sort of tried to get it off the ground again, but none of us we'd all sort of come out of it. Yeah. So revisiting the material, we were like, oh, like this uh, we. You lost your darkness. We couldn't recreate it. Yeah. yeah, we couldn't. We couldn't perform it the same way, and we couldn't like keep writing right to 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 serve it. 
do in you, the same way. Do you find uh, that the improv can be therapeutic? I remember I was getting divorced right when I was taking uh, my UCB classes, and uh, I was taking them before and then during. And I remember when uh, it was going down, I remember like doing a lot of scenes that were clearly something that I was feeling and wanted to act out. I'm not saying I was doing scenes where I was like, you bitch, you know, just like that. But do you find A lot of people do. Does it inform your life? Does it help your life kind of playing these games that most people stop when they're children? I think it definitely does. I don't... I'm trying to think if I've... I'm sure I've done it subconsciously. I'm trying to remember... I don't know if there's ever been a period where I was doing like... Where I was truly like, or, or like on the surface, like working things out. Mm-hmm. But more so, I think it it, it helps to align my worldview. Hmm. Like, especially Death by Ruru, which is the sort of classic group that I was in, or the most heralded. When we... Heralded? Heralded. But also herald did. Harold did? Not worth interrupting you for. <laughs> Certainly not worth it. I'm Are saying, you saying it was, that someone named Harold? I'm saying did? you guys did Harold's and you were heralded. Oh. So both ways you were heralded. We actually formed ourselves and um, we actually did not perform on Harold Night. So we actually really didn't do too many Harold's. It was more of a montage? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did the Avente, we did Mono Scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast I wish people could have seen the look you just pretended to give me that was uh, fucking great so the team that you were the most heralded Death by Ruru and um, you were talking about how it affected your worldview when we're at our best I don't know I don't know I'm going to muscle through. (laughs) Go on. When we're at our best, I think we uh, treat the world in a way, which is my favorite, which is what I love about comedy, which is the type of comedy that just, we could get away with anything. We could get away with being like the most racist, sexist, disgusting, like violent, you know, we could we could touch on any topic in the most. I mean, we have done countless shows that took place on or around nine eleven. No, uh, no. <laughs> there was one show that was just Curtis and Wait, Anthony. I think that involved like the planes coming at some point in the show. Or nobody was there. They were the only ones who could do the show that week, and they did a scene. The whole the whole that whole half of the show, they were just chatting next to each other on an airplane. And by the end, it became clear that they were on oh <laughs> like my God. one of the one of the planes that was heading for the town. <laughs> oh <my laughs> like they were out God. of Boston and they were going to oh. LA or whatever. So the worst thing, yeah. But you're saying, but we, if you do it right, and and not saying not, not that we were like, not that we not that it. That sounds like arrogant when I say do it right. I mean, I just like it. it just happens that you're like doing it right because there's plenty of times where we did it wrong sure. and you know it was Nobody offensive did. and not received well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're in that pocket, it you can get away with anything because the 
the underlying uh, feeling isn't that we're like being hateful or or making fun of uh, people that are you know getting the short end of the stick or whatever, but just that everybody exists in this sort of asshole soup. You know that everybody mm. is just sort of this like the Mad Magazine people. That's why Mad Magazine is so great. It's yeah. like. It's just a sea of sort of weird-looking dickheads. Yes, and that's what the human race is, you know. <laughs> so you can, if you, if you, if you treat everybody like that, you can make fun of everything, right, with impunity, and and not, you know, and it works. Yes, and the audience likes it, right. And I like that. That's what I'm always, I guess, striving for in comedy. That's what I like to see in comedy, and outside of comedy, that's that's sort of how I like to view the world, you know. What asshole soup you mean specifically? Yeah, like we're all in this together. Yeah, I mean, I I have a tendency to think of myself as like better than everybody else. I'm so glad you admitted that. I feel like a lot of people feel that way, and no one would ever just say it like you just said it. But most yeah. people kind of are like, I think I'm better I'm than I'm an these only people. child, and I was... Tr- like, my parents... Like, if I didn't want to take a bath, they would, like, sponge me down in bed. <laughs> <laughs> we had these wooden bowls. My mom would float me ice cream in the bathtub. No, 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 no. That planted the seed where you're like, that's fucking right. That's what I deserve. Sponge me down on some yeah. level. That's My so father funny. was so mistreated as a child that he, and he wanted a child. Yes. That he, he still does this. My entire life, he's been like, you're, like, you're wonderful. You're the best. I'm so proud of you. It's like, oh my God. to the point where it's sort of like annoying now. And I'm sort of like, like I used to believe it. I mean, I still, I guess, believe it because it's imprinted in me. Yeah. But now, nowadays when he does it, I'm just like, okay, like I know this is like your thing that you like to do. Right. I don't, I don't totally buy that it connects with what I'm doing. Well, do you feel pressure to be the golden boy? That's something that I've talked about on the show. As much as my mother especially adores me in the way that you were adored, uh, at a certain point it was like harder to be a three-dimensional person. But I have a feeling that wasn't a problem for you because you just seem like okay with every part of yourself. I, I, I don't know that I exactly feel pressure to live up to something. I always want to be. My problem is, I started improv when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and people were always saying, you know, like. Shortly thereafter, I, you know, got on a team and people thought I was good. And so I I never want to work that hard. I sort of want to be I want to be everybody's only child, there essentially. You go. There like you go. I yeah. want everybody to just automatically think I'm great. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I'm in a situation in a lot of the real world where, you know, people don't just, like, think I'm great and want to give me stuff right off the bat. Right. Give you love right off the bat. Right? Yeah. I feel out of my depth. That's you know? so funny. I think we have that in common. The more, I like, fans of the show we call weirdos, the more stand-up shows I do that are filled with weirdos. Like, it's 300 weirdos. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing night for me. And it feels... Um, 
I don't want to sound arrogant, but it feels kind of like what I've been aiming for. It, mm-hmm. it, it feels like the future I modeled for myself based on my past, yeah. which was this unconditional, like I said, from my parents, certainly both, but especially from my mother. And now building that future where it's like, yeah, I want people to be uh, happy to see me and to give me love and, and to be uh, me to give them love back, certainly. But I, I get what you're saying. And I love how baldly you're saying it. So you learned yeah. that as a kid that that's, what, that that's what you wanted and you go after that. Yeah, totally. And it feels weird when people don't. Yeah. So I don't, I, don't, I don't feel pressure to live up to... Right now in my life, I feel pressure to actually do the work. Like, I see a lot of people doing tons of work, hitting the grindstone, and, like, getting successful. Because, of course, that's what you have to do. Sure. So now I'm getting to a point in my life where I feel like I'm good at... Reaping adulation. I'm good at like showing up when I need to show up and doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at the self discipline of putting my nose to the grindstone and earning, right? You know, that next level. Does it dissect the bird a little bit and it stops singing? Like the effortless, and I can picture you at, at 18. You look, you could still play 18, to be honest. You look like a baby face. But if you came in... I'll be a little 18 year old. Yeah, yeah, and I want to whip you with a wet towel and you run and prance. I think there's a, there's a concern when it comes to a guy like you, 18 years old, good at improv right away. And the effortlessness is part of the appeal. Uh, I've said this on the show before, but it was really haunting to me. I remember it was, it was Zach Galifianakis, pennies dropped. Uh, the act- <laughs> I think that's what British people say instead of name drop. Uh-huh. They say petty drop. Uh, anyway, so Zach told me backstage at UCB one night, I was talking about how I was trying to record my album, and he was like, I think something that you need to learn me, he probably didn't phrase it that way, but this is how I remember it. He goes, something you need to figure out is, is uh, you need to try less, actually. There's a certain point where like going with the flow and being the 18-year-old kid who is just effortlessly good and isn't getting up and looking at the rhyming dictionary just in case you get like a freestyle rap suggestion in your in your mono scene or whatever you were doing <laughs> you know what i'm saying like you just are being that thing yes. and and, you, and surrendering to that in as opposed to the guy uh who is staying up all night and, and really grinding it out so I wonder if you were trying to preserve, it was working for you, and it has been working for you, that sort of coasting mode, and I wonder, how are you finding, what are you doing differently now? Are you, are you giving it more deliberate effort? I guess I'm not even talking about improv necessarily, because improv is sort of, can be a trap on its own. Like, you can do tons of great improv, and still not really be getting that far in your career, you yeah, know? Yeah, Like, you have to do more than improv to have a career, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't start out in my life wanting to do improv. I wanted to, you know, be an actor and also create stories and stuff. Sure. So I feel like improv uh, can also be, or for me, uh, in certain ways was something that I got a lot out of uh, for a lot of years. Uh, But sometimes I also feel like I put so much... It was such a good creative outlet, and I didn't use... I I didn't go to other creative outlets because improv is such a satisfying creative outlet. Yes. In that 
You don't have to prepare for it. You can do whatever you want. Nobody you can be with five friends, five yeah. wonderful friends, yeah. like the funniest people you've ever met, and yeah. you get to hang out. You don't have to think about it. You yeah. don't have to give it. You don't have to revise it. You don't have to get notes on it. Yeah. You have an audience that is generally there to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's jerking off into the wind. Yeah. It's very liberating. It's gone. It's swept away. Yeah. And you can have general ideas like, oh, we should uh, listen more. But no one's going to be like, it, next time you do that, the Pope in Vegas scene. You, no, it's, it's just yeah. it's pure. It's simple. But I, I love hearing you say that. And I think people will benefit from hearing that is the idea that it can be one thing can be a trap in itself. Just doing stand-up can also be a trap in itself. Just doing improv, just doing whatever sure. it is, one thing can hurt you. But even with stand-up, you are, it's you, people can point to you and go, Pete's a great stand-up. It's a good business. We know his, yeah. Right. We know his style, we know his material. Right, right. You know, that's him. It it is a better advertisement for you as a a guy. We we said this on the show before, too, is is a, a good improviser shouldn't stand out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. NBC shouldn't be there and go like, that's the guy yeah. necessarily, unless they're very, very smart and realize the reason you're the guy is because you made the other people look so great while you also looked good. Yeah. But that's not good for, uh, you know, really punching your way up the ladder of, of, of show business. Yeah. So what, what, do you, what are you talking about when you're saying you're being a little bit more deliberate? I mean, I just, I guess, you know, you get to a certain age and you sort of like evaluate yourself mm-hmm. you know i mean i need to write more i need to do more shows you know sure i need to do i'm a lot of times hesitant to put stuff out there because i see all the ways that it's could be bad you, you know hated on or critiqued or is that what you mean like when you say put something out there i'm assuming you mean like a youtube video or yeah or 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 just like write something to completion yeah you know hate it on or just that i read it and i go it's very easy to have ideas and go that's a great idea i'm like i'm great at this you know yeah and then you write something and you go this didn't this doesn't look anything like how i pictured it right i'm not good at this right it's, you know, and how anybody can, you, can have an idea, but, you know, it's the execution, sure. you know. And that must be kind of uncomfortable because you and I have that in common, the golden boy, for lack of a better term, thing. It's like you have this idea and then you have these two God figures in your head, your parents, who are like, that's amazing. Let me float you some ice cream. Good job. And yeah. then you write it. And then grown man John Gamberling looks at the script and goes, but wait a minute, this isn't as good as I want it to be or thought it would be. Yeah. And then you're kind of, you don't really know where to file like a moment like that. Not that it's a failure, but it's like, I think you and I are similar in that we want it to be right, right away. Yeah. I want to write something and be like, isn't this amazing? It's the first draft. Yeah. Fucking beat it. I killed it. And then it's a different kind of guy. I'm relating to you. It's a different kind of guy that has the maturity and the other side of himself to, on one hand, be the genius that goes like, I have an idea. And then to have the maturity of, of the process and go like, and now I wrote it and it's dried up and it's not good. And then to stick with it and refine it and refine it and refine it. That's not fun. That's not, it's not fun. And it's, it's depressing. Not, it's not only hard work uh, just on a, on a sort of tedium level, but it's emotionally difficult. Yes. Every time you write a sentence, you're like, 
it's this whole like just you know emotional you know I'm just evaluating everything yeah 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 and you feel your own criticism and you imagine other people's criticism yeah and then you I'm with you it's it's easier to go fuck this I'm gonna do ruru and I'm gonna jerk off in the wind and it'll be gone and everyone will love it right away but you're right that's a drug in itself that instant affirmation and becoming a celebrity in that world is is a siren calling us to the rocks. I think at some point we realize we're grown people and, and you're even more grown up than I am in that you have a family now. You have to be like, oh, there's something that I have to be like, I'm going to figure out how to get through that hurdle and quantify this and turn it into a thing. Yeah. I mean, for me, the family is the easy part. I mean, it's not easy in the sense that it takes a lot of work and effort and it's, sure. it's difficult uh, physically and Some, emotionally. Yeah, somebody told me that having kids is a young man's game, and I remember hearing that, and I was yeah. like, "Oh Jesus, I keep oh, I'm just getting older." Yeah, picking them up, running around, all that sort of stuff, and 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 being on no sleep, right? And you know, you, you have to put as much work as you have to put into a relationship with your spouse. It's even more, you know, when two people are. At their best, you have to put work into a relationship. Right. When two people are completely stressed out and trying to figure out, you know, how to make everything work. Yes. You're, you know, there's so many opportunities to, like, butt heads and, you know, it's just, it's exhausting. Yeah. The hard thing, though, I know how to do all that. The hard thing is integrating career into it. Because I wasn't that fucking good at it before I had a kid, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, and I think you're right about the less effort thing. Mm-hmm. But I feel like my trajectory is I have to... I have to find the discipline to put more effort in before I can put less effort in, you know? You mean planting some seeds, setting up the stage for you to roll in and be effortless. Yeah. But the, the effort goes into making those things happen. Yeah. When you show up and you're supposed to perform, that's where we're supposed to be effortless. But there are those guys that like make opportunities happen for themselves. Yeah. And they'll always be decent. There's the perpetual motion machine of the guy that's not that talented. I'm not trying to shit on uh, Jay Leno, but like when he was coming up... First of all, Jay Leno was a very esteemed stand-up that everybody agreed was like one of the greats of, of his generation. But he was also the, one of the, if not the Have hardest working Have you seen Jay guy. Leno do stand-up? I don't know that I've ever actually seen no, Jay I haven't. Leno do stand-up. No, I haven't. But even Jimmy Kimmel, who hates Leno famously, <laughs> said uh, one of the reasons he hates him was that he was a master chef who opened a McDonald's. But right. the first part was that he was a master chef. So he was like king of the alt scene basically it was in clubs but it was like that underground this is exciting this is interesting but he was also one of those guys that would wait in line all day for some open call audition he would network and schmooze and and remember names and all that stuff that does take more effort trying to get the engine to turn over and then when we do turn it over and we have that opportunity i think that's when zach's uh advice comes into play Nobody likes a comedian who's trying. People like somebody that who's, who's natural, yeah. who can be relaxed and all that sort of stuff. But if you're trying to do that, how do you do that? How, if you're trying to be natural? Yeah, if you're trying to not try. I mean, isn't that our job? I mean, you know better than anybody. You know better than me. Like, I improvise in my stand-up. But it's anybody... 
Some people, at some point, they have the right mix of coffee, friendship, environment, the food they had, the sleep they got the night before, will hit a golden hour of the day and will kill it with their friend. They're doing an impression of their eighth grade gym teacher. They're remembering all these callbacks and it's yeah. epic. But they did that on Monday at 11 a.m. And it's our job to figure out how to do that. What, what your show was sun, or Saturday at midnight? Uh, Saturdays at... Well, moved around. Saturdays at 9. So Saturdays at 9, but like that's the thing. You had to be in that zone, in that pocket at 9 where you could be effortless. So it was like chemistry. Yeah, but it's a lot easier to be effortless in when you're on stage with friends that you've worked with for years. Right. And the audience is there because they love you. Right. And there's absolutely no stakes on the show, you know? Sure, that's true. To, to, to get up on stage... You know, a couple times I've tried to do stand-up, you know, I'm completely out of my element. On top of that, in my head, I'm like, you're completely out of your element, you know? this I can, I can more easily picture the audience staring at me blankly than laughing at what I'm saying, you hmm. know? Hmm. Uh, or if, the, you know, or if it's like an audition that you really want or anything where there's stakes on it. And you do care. Right. It's very difficult to not care. Right. You know? Expectation. Expectation yeah. sucks. When people are coming to a, a Ruru show and they're already on board, or they're coming to a live podcast or a stand-up show where they're already on board, that's great. But you weren't always there. To get to Ruru, you had to do a lot of auditioning. You had to do a lot of classes and places where you were really hungry and wanted it so badly. And you got through that then. Yeah. So you've been doing that your, your whole life to get to that sweet spot. Uh, yeah. So you but know now I feel like I have to do it on another level. With various other skill sets. Sure. Are you you're auditioning for things and stuff? Mm -hmm. Is that where we're talking about acting? Acting work? Are you still writing with uh... acting? Writing, you know. Uh, uh, but acting's also difficult. You know, you feel like you can act because you do improv, but there's whole like I've taken a few acting classes, and there are whole dimensions to it that you know you don't even touch on. Doing improv, right? You know, is is it because in improv you're? You, well, tell me what you mean. Or what are some of the dimensions you learned about? Well, uh, like when you're working, when you have to take a written piece. And the other thing is, like, I took an acting class and it was great. Um, and you're like working with plays and stuff that are actually like well written. And most of the things you audition for are. Not well written at all. They right. don't make any, you know, like, so the skill, like, you can analyze something that's well written and go, you know, this is a real character that I'm trying to play, and I have to figure out, like, what I want from the other person, you know, what are my, you know, what's my emotional state in this, how do I, the type of acting class I took, you know, the, 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 um, the philosophy was like, you know, figure out what this person wants and is going through and then link it to something that you could be going through that's analogous in your life. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, 
So like that sounds like a lot of work to be like, oh, I'm I'm interviewing right you right now, and this reminds me of that long talk I had with my father that one right. Christmas. <laughs> but it's not it's not even that you want to do something that you that experienced in the past. It's something that you because that's like rote at this point. Like you know, if I'm if I'm a character dealing with loss, you know, maybe I'm imagining like how I will feel when my mother dies or something. Maybe oh, it's I a bad see. Example, but I like, see. If if my mother's already died, I've already had that. So I've already it, gone through that, so that's a little bit rote, and I'm not leaving myself open to like be fluid in the scene, right? You know, because I'm trying to reenact my emotions rather than imagine them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting, and that is difficult. And then you also have to say the words that they said, not the way that you would say it, but you have to say it the way that they wrote it, which yes. I, I found. Difficult going from improv into acting. And we get to a point in these acting classes where you, you're you not even thinking about the words that you're saying. You know, you're just holding on to this emotional state. Hmm. You know, like it doesn't even matter the words. Like the words aren't even your job as much as the emotion of it. Interesting. You know? Where someone like Mamet as a director would say it's all the words it has nothing to do but like you watch his movies and you tend to get these more flatter more uh, less emotional performances yeah I mean but I don't believe that he thinks the actors should be thinking about the words you know that's true the actors should just be be practiced enough that the words are second nature sure um, but you don't really do any of that in improv you know you're making it up as you go along right um, you have a a huge handicap because everybody's looking at it through the lens of well they're making it up so right. you know even if it's like you know it doesn't have to be the best dialogue because everybody knows that it's being made up so right. even like passably good dialogue seems amazing because you yes. know it's being seen through that lens yes that's right so then when to to then go from that to work that is actually... Tr- yeah, I think that's a big thing, too. You know, to sit down and do work... To get up on stage and do improv, you know, you're sort of not responsible for it, in a way. Mm. It's a group of people. You're working off a suggestion, you know. And I'm not trying to downplay improv. I think it's Please. amazing. It's It's been the best part of my life, creatively. Um but to go from that, it's it's to 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 writing something down or, or or putting a pin in something in a way that is like you're making the statement. I think this is good. I gave it forethought. I planned it. Mm-hmm. I replanned it. It's like it. you writing the script, going, "This isn't anything like my initial idea." There's something vulnerable exactly. about yeah. going and now presenting John Gamberling's show. The butterfly with a bomb, or whatever it is. Yeah. The butterfly with a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody saw it coming. What's that? Was that that, that Smashing Pumpkins song? Oh, Bullet... No. There's bullet a Bullet with, with butterfly, butterfly Wings, which is a U2 song. Bullet with Butterfly Wings is Smashing Pumpkins, I thought. Bullet with Butterfly Wings is that one where it's like, outside, it's America. You're thinking of... Uh, despite all my rage, I'm still just riding a cage. Yeah. Which is called... Oh, people are going. People at home are going nuts right now. I should look it up. Yes, I have the Smashing Pumpkins song on my iPod. 
Um, Don't worry about it. Stay on stay on the effort thing, and I'll I'll just look it up real quick. Um, people think people a lot of pe- times people are really impressed. Oh my god, I'm improv. wrong. It is called Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Yeah. What am I thinking? What is the U two song? I don't know. Oh god, people are going nuts. <laughs> um, Go on. Yep, please. Sorry. People are so amazed by improv when they see it for the first time. You know, they go. That scares you know. I couldn't imagine doing that. That you know, you're just making it up. Right. For me, at this point, that's the most comfortable thing. The more frightening things are putting out stuff that I really have my seal of approval. I was just going to say the seal of approval. Yeah. This was deemed good by you, and now you have to put it out to other people. Yeah. But I guess doesn't that come from like a self validation place? Are you, I feel like you are decent at that, or are you? If you write something and you do like it, do you worry that other people will like it or are you kind of like, well, I like it? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think if I write something and I truly like it and think it's good uh, and, and, and it's an honest expression, yeah, I don't, I don't think I care if other people like it. I mean, if nobody, you know, if it's unanimously, <laughs> you know, Pam. if people I respect, you know, and there's Everyone always limits. Hates yeah. it. Everyone hates it. <laughs> I, would, I would not feel good. Sure. Can I ask you, when we were talking about the 9-11 stuff and the improv that you guys would do with Ruru, mm-hmm. do you think that um, comedy in general or improv like that? Because you're talking about how people... Not only is there a handicap where people will kind of laugh more or be engaged more because they know that it's being made up, but there's an allowance made for offensive things. If you wrote a play that was two guys and it's revealed at the end that they're on one of the flights that crashed into the World Trade Center, that would be uh, premeditated and people would be like, what the fuck? That's really weird. But because you know it's being made up, there's, there's an area in improv, I think, that allows us to do work like that. And this is my question. Do you think work like that helps us face our fears? Like, that's something we're all kind of afraid of. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's just... I mean, I think there's plenty of stand-up that deals with it. There's plenty of movies and... I mean, I think all forms of art deal with stuff. I mean, the fucking movie Precious, she's an obese black woman with AIDS who's got a retarded baby by her biological father who rapes her at night in between her mother throwing... Scalding pans of pork chops at yeah, right? yeah yeah. Am I remembering Precious correctly? <laughs> yes, you are. Unfortunately, I mean, and that's like you know. Well, that's that heralded. That's helping us face fear. That's a big fear, and also the fact that we're kind of like all. I, I don't want to be. I, I was behind a motorcycle guy who had a on the back of his jacket. It said, "You're dead already," and I was like, <laughs> "We are dead already." Like we are kind of. And I'm not trying to. Uh, speak lightly of, of something as huge as 9-11, but we're all kind of on a plane that's going to crash at some point, meaning your human body, meaning your life. Sure. We're, we're all... So there's something kind of artistic and poetic about that. And well, at a certain point, we'll hit a generation where they can just map your brain on a computer chip, though. The singularity? Uh, yeah. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> There's a good chance that you're... Uh, is it a son or daughter? Son. Uh, that's right. Uh, Odin. Own, Onan? Odin. Odin. Oh, there's a good chance Odin will live to like 150 years and then have his brain backed up. How wild is that? Yeah. But will that really be him? 
Or you could preserve a brain indefinitely inside of a machine. Sure. And then reanimate it at some point. Or just like Krang, you know, just like have it like walk around or, or go into a matrix, you know, like... Right. It seems like we're pretty close to being able to... <laughs> if we're not in one already. Preserve our brain. You know, I read a thing. That's, that's a I'm theory. I'm reading a scientist. That, that is a theory that we live that if... What's the thought experiment? If, if there's um, a sufficiently advanced civilization will create simulations of the universe, as we do now. Right, with video games and whatnot. No, no, we, we, we run with supercomputers. We run simulations of, oh, we do. of the universe. Oh, I thought you just meant entertainment. No, no, they're, they're on a small scale. Like They're like atom-sized particles of the universe, but, and it's a small segment of the universe, relatively. But right. With enough technology, with enough computing power, we would be able to model a fairly advanced universe. So... Um, that then leads us to the idea that if if there are advanced, sufficiently advanced simulated universes, yes, universes out there, there would be more simulated universes than actual universes. So the likelihood is we are living in a simulated universe. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> It makes as much sense as anything. Everything makes as much sense as anything. Yeah. We, I love that idea that there would be, if, if we're in the future, more, it would be more likely than you're in a simulation than you're in the real universe. Yeah. And we're living in the future. Mathematically more likely. I wonder if there is a simulation. Every time there's a conversation like this or a movie like The Matrix comes out, there are scientists watching. These like godlike scientists watching and going like, look how close they are. Or like, these idiots have no fucking idea how right they are. It would be a real hoot. I bet that would be some good entertainment. Yeah. Watch how close we get. To but they themselves it. could be living inside a simulation. I mean, we're talking simulations inside of simulations. Which is how the Matrix should have ended, but instead it was just dumb. I yeah. I didn't like the way it ended. I didn't. I mean, the first one's like fine. Yeah, but it, everybody was like, everybody went crazy over that fucking movie. Oh, I liked it a lot, but I think a I, lot of, I mean it's a great action movie. A lot but of people haven't like, hadn't thought thoughts like that. I love that you said thought experiment. I'm big into thought experiments, and it really uh, got me going that you said that because I like entertaining those sorts of ideas. Sure. Going back to your dad for a second, like I love entertaining. What if your dad is correct? Do you think about the the trauma of birth? Like your 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 son is born, and that's like the first thing he does on Earth. You know, Freud said that that's the beginning of like neuroses and all these different things. Is the how traumatic our births are that we're kind of rebelling against that the rest of our lives? I mean, you saw. I don't. It, right? I don't know that. Yeah, I mean, but I've also seen him fall down and hit his head and. Go through all kinds of crazy physical stuff, but but the, you're right. That is the first time. I mean, it's it's. But were we neurotic? Are animals neurotic? You know, deers look pretty jumpy. <laughs> They're jumpy, but are they neurotic? I mean, like elephants in captivity, like like circus elephants have like a neurotic sway. You is know, that they, neuroses? Well, yeah, they, they they do this like when they're standing still, they sway neurotically. Um, Ooh, that's depressing. So animals can be neurotic in captivity, but are they? What is neuro? You know, is neurosis just a modern thing? Right. Like I can imagine before division of labor, when we were just hunter gatherers, and every man was responsible for 
every element of his survival, why would you be? You wouldn't be neurotic, you know. You'd be out hunting and you'd be well, dancing around the fire. It's funny that you say that. Isn't that why? Like we often. I was driving here today and I was like, I, I need something. I couldn't figure out what I needed, and I was like, I think I need to get out of the city. I need to return to that like sort of. I had this whole fantasy. It was like Northern Exposure, and I was like, I just want to be in a place where all there is is a lake and uh, not much to eat or water, and I just have to like fend for myself. There is that yearning for that because you can't really be that neurotic there because your life has ultimate purpose. I yeah. need to feed myself. I need to shelter. But you also don't really want that at this point in civilization, you know? Like, well, I certainly don't. Think of the times when the power goes out and you're like, you know, I want it for a weekend. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but if you're really like. Walking through the forest, like wondering what's edible and how you catch a squirrel. <laughs> it might be fun, like as a hike for a couple hours, but like it's nighttime, it's getting yeah. cold, yeah. you're really uncomfortable. You don't want that. <laughs> but when you're really uncomfortable, you're not thinking about like how depressed you are that your uh, your DVR doesn't rec- deleted your favorite show or whatever. No, but you are thinking about the alternative. That is your normal life that you want to get back to. That's true. You know? Although that, I guess that would be the blissful ignorance of just being like, this is what life is. I need yeah. to eat these twigs. Well, and there's a system for, you know, you, you have a tribe, you have a village, you right. have an acceptance of a potential early death. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You don't... We, we've, we've seen this other thing. We're caught in... It's. I always think of this. It's a line in Revenge of the Nerds when they're at that party, when they're like they're throwing the party and they're waiting for the hot chicks to show up, or or the Omega Moos have already shown up, and you know, Poindexter, you know, the curly haired, sure. red haired guy, is like high on the couch, and he's he goes, but think about it. Would you rather live in the ascendancy of a civilization or in its decline? And it's true. We, you'd probably, you'd probably want to live right where we are now, which is like the top of the roller coaster. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like everything's like our civilization. It's a global civilization now, but you know, it's it's gotten to the top of this thing, and we're at the point where we we don't know if it's sustainable or not. We don't know if we're in decline or right. not. You know. Right. And if we are, we're right at the beginning of the decline. Well, that's where they built the Matrix, remember? The peak of the Western civilization. Yeah. The, what did they call it? The, we the mo- Renaissance? The, the, I remember you said we marveled at our own magnificence yeah. at this moment. where, like, And they kept trying to put us in like utopias or whatever. But like, it's better to live in a place where you're like, I don't know if we can keep this going. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I was just thinking about like... Uh, look, I see the recession everywhere. Like, I just took the train from D.C. to Philly, and I got a front row seat on the train to looking at the decay of the country. But a lot of the time, I'm in an airport, and I'm looking at how they have, like, a wine bar that pairs cheeses. You know what I mean? Like, when I was a kid, the airport was a Burger King. It was, like, a half-size Burger King, and there was a huge line for it, and that's all there was. And now you can, like, be like, our flight's delayed. Good. Bring me more... Sauvignon Blanc you know what I mean but it's all still shitty isn't it I no mean, not now all airports some airports are really nice yeah <laughs> I, I mean there's like there was the last time I was at the airport I got like a sandwich and the sign on it is like 
like world market artisanal sand. Like they sure. put a nice oh, sign I on see. it, and it was, but it's like yeah. deli meats. It's like warmed over deli meat. Yeah, the fucking the people working there are. <laughs> The scum of the universe. Oh, my God. They're, you know, they look like they were dragged out of the fucking Sarlacc pit. <laughs> they're, like, angry. They're, like, like I got, like, turkey and bacon. You know, I got, like, a club. Yeah. And they're, like, ringing me up. And they, they have no system to even <laughs> account for the meats they've given you. So the sandwich woman is screaming at the cashier, He had bacon! He had bacon, too! As if I'm trying to get away with something. <laughs> And this whole thing is under the banner of this, like, Artism. artisanal stuff. And it's just it's you think the maybe worst experience. The technology hasn't improved, just the signage has improved. Yeah. Like we have better and, words. And, and the notion that, yeah, then different types of bread. Yeah. You know, that you can get bread in, like, a, a, a square, a yeah, greasy Picasso. square yeah, rather than, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, a fair point. It's a fair point. I think you're right. I texted, um, I want to talk more about your dad... I called Jess St. Clair and I texted Curtis to get weird things about you. And then, I, oh, I also remember one weird thing that I knew. One time we were standing outside of UCB. I think it was during the, it's not called the all-nighter. What is it? 24-hour improv or something. Like uh, Del Close Marathon. Marathon. Or the Del Close the Marathon. The all-nighter. I call it the college humor Del Close Marathon. By the way, the song is Bullet the Blue Sky. I just remembered the YouTube oh, song. Great. Anyway, great song. Good to know. God. <laughs> You keep sharp cheating me. I remember you told me, this goes back to your being floated bowls, bowls of ice cream sort of upbringing in Manhattan, right? You grew up in Manhattan. Yeah. And so I grew up really... Small apartment, though. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, you, you picture growing up in Manhattan and... Fancy. Know, yeah. You think people think it's like a penthouse or something. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to grow up in Manhattan, but it was a really small apartment. You liked it. People that grew up in Manhattan tend to like it. I did like it. I yearned for the sort of uh, John Hughes-ish, like, get on your bike and ride over to your friend's house. And But don't you have that even... I feel like you have that even more in Manhattan. It's just you take the train over or you walk over. But the, not at, like, eight, nine, ten years old. You right. Know? You're sort oh, of, I see. Everything's sort of an island until, you, until you're old enough to go out on your own. And by then, the kids are so grown up. Like, I always felt like... By the time I was old enough to sort of go around the city on my own at night, the other kids were like drinking 40s on stoops and getting hand jobs, and I just felt I didn't. I just wanted to go home at that point because I felt more comfortable. Right. Just watching TV with my mom. Well, the kids do grow up really, really quickly. That's the concern, I think, because yeah. you're exposed to everything. I mean, I would imagine that they do everywhere. I mean, I don't, I don't, well, yeah, kids some getting kids hand do. jobs in sixth grade. You know, there's always like a couple kids that are ahead of the curve. Yeah, I suppose so. But I feel like the concern of raising a, a family in Manhattan is like they're going to uh, just everything's there. Drugs are there. Alcohol is there. Like I remember when I would go to Manhattan for field trips, it used to blow my dick off that I would just see the little uh, magazine stands that had pornography. Mm-hmm. You know, just seeing the oh, yeah. cover of pornography was enough to give me masturbation material for like a month. Yeah. So like if I lived in a city where not only did I see pornography, but there were strip clubs and there were like hookers and then there were just, you just saw more humanity. I remember even when I was like 22 and I moved to Manhattan I uh, or Brooklyn, but I was in Manhattan when I saw this, I saw a girl walking on the street just drunk and her top was off. Like you just saw shit. <laughs> and like I was so... 
I, at that point, I think that was the second pair of human breasts that I had seen, my wife being the first. And I saw a jiggling second example walking down 3rd Street. Yeah, you I was like, holy shit. shit. So, like, even when I went to Manhattan at 22, I started growing up faster. Yeah. And you got that when you were, like, 10, 12, 14. Yeah. There were these folding tables outside of HMV that, that sold porn. They would sell to anybody because they were just folding tables. <laughs> and I bought the, uh, the Jenny McCarthy Playboy. You did. And I watched Singled Out. Yes. And I would jack off to Jenny McCarthy because I thought she was so hot. I had no idea she was in Playboy. Then I saw her in Playboy. I was like, "This is incredible!" Oh my god! And you weren't. See, that's the thing is my relationship with pornography growing up, and this actually goes into my first memory of you. You were telling me about how you had fucked or would fuck a blow up doll, like when you were a kid. Like 18 yeah. years old. Yeah, and did. I remember saying, I think my first question was, weren't you afraid your mom would find it? And I, I'm not going to quote you, but you said something along the lines of like, oh, she knew I had it or who cares? There was, well, <laughs> I have a story about that. But I, I, my house was so small. Like there was one bathroom and it was through my room. So I had, there was no privacy. I had to jerk off so sneakily <laughs> You know, uh, with your Jenny McCarthy, yeah. And I had my porn hidden behind like a little sock drawer at the foot of my bed. <laughs> and then one day I found it, like it had been organized. Like one of my parents like found it and just like neatened it up a little bit. Oh. And so at that point I was just like, "Fuck it," and I just put it up on the shelf and I didn't make any bones about it because there was nothing. What could I do? There was no... But isn't that kind of a subtle message from your parents that it's like, you, we have, I know you have it. Like, they didn't have to clean it up. They cleaned it up and didn't get mad at you. And yeah. that in itself is a lesson where they're like, we know you're an adolescent. We know you're jerking off and that's normal. And then you followed suit and put it on your shelf, which yeah. I actually think is kind of lovely. Yeah, no, there was nothing. I mean, they weren't the kind of parents that I ever thought they would be mad about it. My yeah. dad, you know, was always... Was, was, you know, always free to talk about sexual stuff. Yes. So I didn't think they'd be mad. It was just embarrassing. And I, at that moment, I was like, I can live with this fear or I can just put it on the shelf and, like, that's it. Yeah. Um, but I was fucking this blow-up doll one time. <laughs> Where was the doll? Where did you keep the doll? The doll, I don't remember. I mean, I deflated it. So it went in the sock drawer? It maybe went back into its box or something, or just into a pile. You know, it was like an Upper West Side apartment that's small, so there's like piles of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Pile, very helpful in hiding the box blow-up doll. Yeah. So it's in, in there. Yeah. So it's just one of those rough ones that has like seams and stuff. It's not like a fancy doll. It's just a blow. Oh yeah. Thing. Well, the vagina was unfuckable because they have like it has like a like a like a freshness seal on it. I guess so. Yeah. Like you have to like peel a piece of latex out of it. Yes. Out of the vagina. Yes. Uh, I guess to prove that it's never been used before. Even yeah. Though they don't have doll. one in the butt or the mouth. <laughs> but pulling that thing out left a rim of sort of sharp rubber there so it actually was uncomfortable to go into the vagina so you had to do the mouth or the butt <laughs> was the butt roughly the same size as the vagina or was yeah, it, it was smallest? Smallest. yeah it's <laughs> um 
So I was fucking this blow-up doll. And it's I had bought them, like, as a prop for, like, a funny thing I was doing. Like, I didn't... I didn't... I wasn't so into fucking blow-up dolls that I, like, went and, you know, sought it out as a fuck thing. But I had them anyway, and I figured... Uh, and uh, my mom I guess was home she wasn't home early I just didn't I just was hoping to get it done before she got home but she got home and I had I had like put the chain lock on the door and locked the door yeah and I fooled around enough in general with my mom like did little pranky things that I could sort of get away with it but she I was fucking this blow-up doll, and her key hits the lock, and she opens the door, and it's locked. And I, I immediately, like, you know, undid the the valve thing on it, and I'm, like, oh, squeezing it out. Oh, God. And she's like, open this goddamn door, like, over there. I'm like, I, <laughs> I guess I was like, you can't get in. I, I locked you out. I was, like, doing this, like, tee-hee-hee, I've locked you out. And she hears in the background, and... As, yeah, as I'm like, <laughs> she's like, open the door, open this door. So I like get it down into a ball and just stuff it under like the bench in the kitchen. Uh, and then I, you know, let her in and I was like, oh, you couldn't get in, right? It was a real fun, funny prank. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you have to ignore so much as a parent. Well, sure. I mean, I, I haven't yet, but you know. You will. I mean, I would, I would have like, I would just come onto the floor in the kitchen, onto the linoleum floor, and just sort of grind it in with my foot. Oh my! And then God. there would be these like round, like <laughs> medallion, like little dirty circles on the floor. You jumped up on the floor of the kitchen. That's where the TV was. <laughs> <laughs> what? That is and occasionally I'd come in and my mom would be down like cleaning the floor and she'd be like what am I cleaning and I'd be like I don't know but she knew I mean if she's asking she knew she knew well I always used to say uh, my mom must have thought I just had a cold year round because my the Kleenex situation in my bedroom was huge yeah you know what I mean like I didn't think as a kid you're just like oh you know snot and cum look pretty similar so who cares? But like my mom noticed I didn't have a cold yet, perpetually refilling the the waste bin in my bedroom. So I mean, she knew. They knew. Of they course knew. they knew. But what are they gonna do? I don't know. And there's you're you're powerless to stop it, you know? <laughs> I'm powerless to stop it. Well Jess St. Clair told me you took the blow up doll to prom. I did. Instead of her. She wanted to go with you. Or she said she would I, go with I you. I guess I didn't believe that she was serious. Plus, she, she's married. To, she's married, right? She's married, yeah. She's married to the guy that she was dating then. I mean, she was in a long-term relationship. Right. It wasn't like... She told me to tell you that she would have put out. <laughs> I yeah. think she was kidding. I don't know. But you took, <laughs> you took the same blow-up doll to prom? I had two, so I can't remember which. You had a favorite one. Yeah. I lent... Gelman and Daly wanted it for one of their sketch shows. I lent them one. A used one. One that you had ejaculated And Daly was in. like sticking his finger in there. And he's like, what is this? I was like, what do you think it is? You're oh. borrowing my... Oh my god. <laughs> I'm not going to... What am I, your maid? I'm not going to get down on my hands and knees and clean it for you. I'm lending it to you. <laughs> so what, what was it like taking a, a blow-up doll to prom? And then you have to tell me about your fleshlight. Curtis said, ask him about his fleshlight. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like that. My, my dad made like a little uh, silver lame dress for it and a corsage. So he got it. He got. He thought it was funny. Oh, yeah. He lo- my did dad gave clean- me the fleshlight. Did Did you clean out the, the blow-up doll before prom? Did you give her a little scrub? I don't know. I don't think so. You just took it filled with your DNA? But here's the thing. I went to an all-boys private school. So our prom was like a bunch of... All boys and all girls schools. Yes. And it was like, uh, you know, just some central thing. And I went, you know, we got a limousine, me and a bunch of friends. And then, so I stayed at the prom for like 45 minutes. And then we went to the Hamptons to party at this fabulously wealthy kid's house. So this blow up doll just ended up making on the limousine floor. Yeah, Yeah. It wasn't like. I wasn't like, you know, slow dancing. To... It got run over by the airport, and some other gambling watched it deflate as crows circled. Yeah. <laughs> so, what is the flashlight? Your dad bought you a flashlight. Um, yeah, a flashlight is a is a sex a great toy for story. a boy. Well, he said to ask you about the flashlight. You don't, can't think of why. Well, my dad bought it for me. That might be why. He's. <laughs> I mean, I loved... I was very, you know... Wait, how old are you when you're getting this? 16? He gave you a flashlight at 16? Yeah. I didn't know they existed back then. Yeah. What did he get you? The nondescript slit? Vagina? Um, I think it was mouth. He gave They're all the same. They're all the same. It was glow in the dark, though. So you could hold it under the light, and then, like, there'd be this eerie little glow. <laughs> you get a blowjob from an alien, basically. Yeah. Um, Did he give you lube too? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> he was always he was he got into like the club scene when I was like sixteen years old. Which club scene? Like, I guess it, predominantly the like Chelsea gay club scene. Okay. Um, Is your dad gay? He's not gay. I mean, he was. He's got a lot of weird sexual stuff because he was, like, abused heavily as a child. Oh, yeah. Um, so, he's... I think if... I think he would not have been gay if nothing... Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's bisexual. Predominantly, I've known him to have girlfriends and... Right. Uh, you know. You think he might be working out some of his past through his sexuality? Um, I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, or a weird. I don't know that he's working it out. I, I, I think he, I think, it's hard to say what somebody. I, I don't want to say that. It sounds sort of like, I don't know, Republican to say like abused people are turned gay. Right. I don't think that is the case, and I don't know what what the case would have been had he had a normal childhood, but I think it gave him. It, it allowed him to take labels off of sexuality. Okay. You know? But whenever he's been in a relationship, it's been with a woman. Okay. But he he worked at the Gay Cable Network for a while. They were like uh, on uh, public access, Manhattan public access. Uh, so he was like in that community a lot. Mm-hmm. And they had they actually had sex parties at the Gay Cable Network. He would manage and run the sex parties. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it was a dirty, dirty place. Uh, yeah. So, wait, your mom and dad divorced? They divorced. They My mom served him with papers in, like, 93 or 94, and he, like, he didn't leave the house for, like, another four years, and then their divorce wasn't actually finalized until, like, 99, because... In New York, you have to, like, fi- refile all this paperwork and stuff. Oh, my God. You have to, like, wait a year after filing to finalize it, I think. So yeah. So I just never got around to it. <laughs> but my dad stayed in the house, and he was always... His thing was always, like, you weren't ready for me to leave. <laughs> I wasn't... Uh... I wasn't ready for him to leave. I mean, and finally, my mom was, like, screaming at him one night. <laughs> she was, like, screaming at him to get out. She called the cops... Basically on herself. She called the cops, and the cops were like, what's going on? And, you know, she was like, I'm screaming. She called uh, the cops on herself. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, she, she wanted, didn't do anything illegal or anything. But, but she wanted them to get him out of there. He stayed four sh- years after they I broke I can't remember out. how many. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a couple to four years. But it's a small apartment. Where is he sleeping at that point? He might have been sleeping in the bed with her. He might have been sleeping on the floor. I can't remember. Uh, but eventually he moved out. <laughs> was your mom, like, dating and he was dating? I mean, no, nobody was dating. It was just a weird situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they didn't... I mean, they dated very sparsely even after that. So he, so then he starts hosting these sex parties after they got divorced or after they weren't together. Uh, yeah, but I was like fifteen or sixteen, so that's like ninety six or ninety seven. He he would like he loved to go dancing at these clubs like like Limelight and Palladium and the Roxy. Yeah, he just loved. I mean, he discovered like this outlet, and he would like do drugs. He tried pot for the first time. Yeah, you know he. He did all sorts of drugs. He would be like, he's he's very proud of his like tolerance for drugs. He'd be like, I had to take like seven tabs of acid before I felt anything. <laughs> what? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's insane. <laughs> he was like, I have a high tolerance for for like chemicals and stuff. He's like very proud of it. That's what like <laughs> gurus and stuff say is they take acid and feel no effect because they're always kind of tripping a little yeah, bit. That's what your is. dad says. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So you have this dad going about and and experimenting with drugs and dancing at gay clubs and hosting sex parties and stuff. That that seems to you seem like pretty well adjusted. I'm not saying that that should definitely fuck you up, but I feel like that could have fucked some people up. Well, by that point, I was happy that he had found something to be into. You know. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't dangerous. Like, I never got the sense that he was like in danger or doing anything horrible. Yeah. You know? Um, St. Clair told me something about a centaur and painting his dick brown or something. Is that a thing? Centaur? I mean, he would dress up a lot. He would... <laughs> it, 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 I don't think he was a centaur. He, he, he had, like... He has, like, this, like, elk mask. He loves, like, uh, roadkill and stuff. He'll, like, taxidermy them or, like, you know... What? He's got a lot of, like, skin... Like, deer skin, elk skin stuff, so... He's got this mask. He's definitely gone to parties, like, naked, covered in, like, 
yeah, gold or brown paint and just like this deer mask. But that's what these guys, you know, if you go to into this world for, you know, five minutes, you realize, oh, this is like what these guys do. It's like not that weird. Yeah. This to is them. like, yeah. They dress up, I mean, they, it's like Lady Gaga was so shocking to everybody with her pageantry and stuff, but right. that's like a Saturday night for these people. They spend their entire lives on elaborate, I mean, some of them, yeah. crazy costumes to go clubbing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever people want to do, you know? Right. It's not... But this is your father figure. I mean, that, that's an interesting father figure. But he... A lot of people have tough childhoods, and they end up repeating those patterns. You know? Mm-hmm. He was committed to not repeating those patterns, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know if he's capable of it. You know, he's... I think one of the hugest things I learned from him was just sort of openness and tolerance for... Whatever. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he was so... Outside of the human race, you know? He's, like, outside of what most people would consider the normal human experience. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, good and bad uh, to be his son because, on the one hand, it's good because you can sort of view human experience from a strange point of remove Mm -hmm. and get a, a, a sort of perspective on it. On the other hand, you have to come to grips with the fact that you are part of the human race. You are subject to human, you know, urges and and prejudices and... Uh, Judgment. Yeah. And you do have to figure out, or at least I have to figure out, how to live within that, mm-hmm. realistically. In other words... I think that went a long way to my what I was talking about earlier about like feeling like I'm above most people or better than most people, you know, because he felt so outside of that, you know, and it was easy for me to feel outside of that. Um, and then, you know, you grow older and you go, well, I know that I've felt outside of it for so long, but I'm also, you know living a life that is subject to these things, you know, I've had to learn to go, it's not bad to feel like you're a common person Hmm. in certain ways, you know? Like, my dad's big on saying, like, he hates labels, you know, when people label stuff. But of course it's sort of bullshit, because he, he actually is very judgmental in in his own way. Right. And he is, in fact, judgmental of the idea of labeling, you know? Sure. So, I've had to go, you know, sometimes it is okay to label things, or, or, or there are things that you just can't help, you know? I'm, I'm, I guess, struggling to find specifics here, but I never, I never wanted to feel like a normal person or like a, a, a common person. But 
I think I'm starting to realize that I, in a certain way, have to seem, have to feel okay with that or like that in order to benefit from the answers that people have figured out. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't like, I mean, I, I guess I, I have contempt for the common man. <laughs> and it's true, most people are idiots, you know? Right. I just heard a thing on NPR, which I thought was hilarious, where, where they were like, it's been a hundred years or so since the start of the women's uh, liberation uh, uh, or, or women's rights movement. Um, and polls show that more women would rather be America's next top model than a Pulitzer Prize winner. And more women <laughs> would rather lose their ability to read than lose their figure. <laughs> so, which is fine, you know. It's, it's, I mean, that's contemptible. But it also speaks to this... You read Facebook and you read... I'm sort of getting off topic, I guess. It's fine. Everybody makes these posts about how they're offended by this and they're offended by that. And really, they're just getting up on their own goddamn soapboxes and, and taking some attention for themselves mm-hmm. by making an unassailable point that they can be right about. Mm-hmm. But really, they're just being bitchy little prisses. And, you know, what does it matter? You know, this somebody said something that could be taken as insensitive towards, you know, women or minorities or or... or Anybody, you know? Right. So I'm choosing to light on this as as my Facebook post for the moment. Right. But isn't it more enjoyable to just look at the world as, like, most people are a bell curve of idiots. We're all in this soup. Of, asshole soup. Yeah. Can we come back to asshole yeah, soup? Yeah, we're all in this asshole soup. And <laughs> it's good to have these ideals. You know, yeah. like we should all be striving towards betterness, and we are. You know, as much as people bemoan, you know, as much as as much as uh, you know, modern life is. It's easy to sort of shit on it because of its horrors and neuroses and and you know existential uh, uh, depletion that can come along with it. We are better off than we were a thousand years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot less people are out and out murdered or die in insane wars or sure. massacres or from diseases. You know, life is easier. And we do well to just get over it a little bit and just accept that it's easier, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's I like that phrase, like, learn to take yes for an answer, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, we got to learn to, like, you know, we have it pretty good. Uh uh, uh, I got so far off topic. No, <laughs> um, we were we were talking about your dad, and we were talking about you were saying it's good and bad that you were raised by him, and uh, labels. You're talking about your father didn't like labels. Oh and that's yeah, what kind of launched us here? Yeah. So there's a lot of it's bad to think of yourself as as being outside of the sort of flow of common human existence. Because there's a lot of universal experiences that people have. Community. Yeah. The community of assholes. Yeah. And and for better or for worse, I mean there's 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 common joyous experiences and there's common tribulations. So to think of yourself as being 
separate from everybody. It means you sort of have to figure everything out for yourself. You know, you have to, if you're having a problem, you know, like you watch so many sitcoms where the husband and wife have, uh, you know, this typical fucking husband and wife relationship where the guy just wants to eat hoagies and yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, he wants to eat hoagies <laughs> and be left alone. Yeah. yeah, and the woman wants to, you know, plan their next, you know, trip to you know go shopping or something. Sure, sure. And as galling as it is to accept, there are truths to that, right? You know, and and. He does want a hoagie, and maybe she does want the family to spend more time together and communicate or whatever it is, yeah. whatever the female version of a hoagie is. I mean, I don't know what my dad wants. I mean, he really is... I've tried to beat him into uh, uh, some sort of mold at various times, and <laughs> it doesn't really work. So I, I, I don't know that I can totally speak for him. But mm. for me, it's more helpful... To go, as galling as it is to think of my life in any sort of parallel with these, you know, rancid sitcom relationships, there are similarities. At the end of the day, you're in the asshole soup, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the ways that people cope, maybe some of it works for how I can cope, you know? Right, right, right. I don't relate to all of it, you know? And it's okay to not relate to all of it. But you're finding a little bit of joy in uh, de-isolating yourself. Yeah. Or, or, or I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to, to put my mind in that direction. Yeah. More. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to ask if uh, where in this very interesting parental uh, coming up. Uh, structure. Did you have any religion? Was there? We always like to talk about religion on the show. I'm wondering, with all of this sort of, uh, I don't say paganistic in a bad way, like a, almost a lovely pagan. Here's a flashlight. Jerk yourself off. <laughs> fuck, fuck the sex doll. Just deflate it before your mom comes in. Sort of Manhattan upbringing, and you do seem like a very I'm okay, you're okay in a good in a good way sort of person. Was there any sort of uh, religion being taught to you or spirituality? I mean, no. My my parents were not religious. My dad taught me mythology mm-hmm. a lot. He's big into sort of iconography, and he's into different religions, Hinduism and Taoism and, and Greek mythology, the sort of, you know, gods of antiquity and mm-hmm. stuff. So I... Learned about a lot of that stuff, <clears throat> um, but there was no. And official... I guess was influenced by the philosophy, but no, there was no official. There was there was nothing. I wasn't ever taught any doctrine or like religious ideal to live up to. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad always loved to talk about. He loves Pan, you know that the the. Seder, the Greek goat yeah, god. His that, labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. He has a labyrinth. 
Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the movie. Um, you know, he like he was you know this randy drunken satyr that you yes. know loved to chase women and and um, my dad was was he hated that Christianity sort of killed off the Greek god. You know, the Greek gods became the Roman gods, and then Christianity came in and sort of killed them off and drove them into obscurity. And the goat, the pan figure is sort of, is was turned into a satanic figure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, he didn't like Christianity. Mm-hmm. He knew a lot about everything. I mean, I, I learned about the Bible, and I learned about these different religions, but... No, I was I was never. Well, what does Pan teach? I'm wondering what that philosophy is. Well, the Greek gods don't teach anything really. That that's 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 a big difference. I mean, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, the sort of these Judeo-Christian, uh, Middle Eastern fucking, I'll kill you as soon as look at your religions are. <laughs> Are are different in the sense that you know they everything's this big fucking moral mm-hmm. you know and it's this and it got t- it gets taken so literally um, the Greek gods were in the asshole soup that's what's so great about them you know Zeus was constantly having affairs and fighting with his wife. <laughs> they were all fucking each other, getting in trouble, toying with men. You know, they were subject to the... They were representations of men and their attributes. Uh-huh. As opposed to some holy outsider. Right. They were not... They were something to court the favor of and make offering to and, and uh, I guess wonder at their power but they weren't I don't believe maybe I'm talking out of school but I don't think that the Greeks were aspiring to their ideals in the same way that Christians It wasn't what would Zeus do Right right. Because Zeus would do the same thing that you would do He's just all power, you know, like if you want to win a war, you sacrifice to Athena, right? Uh, um, you know, if you want a good harvest, you sacrifice to Demeter. They take the, they are all the aspects They're of the hire. world, <laughs> sort of. I yeah. mean, I mean, and I, there, there has to be more spirituality to it than that, you know. But, but they are representative of. The world and nature and man and his inclinations and the animal world and mm-hmm. its inclinations. They're not this... And they could be wrathful, but they're not this judging fucking prick in the sky who's making unreasonable requests. Or, 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 or they were fallible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They they made mistakes and they uh, uh, like somehow the Judeo Christian God gets to be vengeful and infallible. He gets to have poor qualities while also being somebody who's 
Perfect. Judgment, yeah, could 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 never be impugned. Right. Which is just dumb. You know, well, the Old Testament God is certainly more like a Greek God with his wrath and sacrifice and all that sort of stuff, trying to get God on your side and, and literally win wars and wipe out enemies and all that sort of stuff. And then the, the New Testament certainly softens that character up quite a bit. And that's yeah. where we get our perfect, omnipotent, ever-present guy who you can't question. Uh, what, what is your system now? Are you believing anything now? <laughs> I mean, I'm watching Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> That was the uh, most perfect NPR. I'm better than everybody. You have a lord of your life now? Well, Walter White. <laughs> um, no. I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by the universe and science and the sort of... I mean, you can have... I feel like you can have a spiritual sense and you can have philosophies and certainly a moral code without you know, pretending like you're answering to some thing that clearly doesn't exist. I mean, this is, you, you look at these, like, Christian people, and you know that in the back of their mind, they're like, I mean, I don't know, do you, are you religious? I don't know if I'm... No, no, you're not offending me. Here. Please keep going. In fact, one of my, the pillars of my belief is, as someone who used to be a believer, I think if you get deep down enough, you'll get someone that goes like, I don't really believe that you, John Gemberling, are going to hell because you haven't claimed Christ as your savior. Yeah, I mean, I... I most people aren't that delusional. I mean, most people. Well, I don't know. You Either think they're they full of baloney? I, I I think that it's easy. I know how easy it is to delude myself about so many things. Yeah. And I can't imagine if you grow up. If that's how you grow up, I don't understand people that like go off and aren't religious and then go become religious. But if that's how you grow up. I mean, if that's what you know... Right. Yeah, of course. As long as it doesn't hurt other people, you're fine with that sort of thing. Oh, I mean, I'm not... I, I think I think the, the big modern religions are, are, are ludicrous and probably pretty dangerous to the... You know, I, I'd like to see them go away. You would? Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're just... I mean, what's the difference between religions like Christianity... And Judaism and Islam and, like, the Republican Party. They're all power structures that, at their core, are, are you know, wield immense power, hold, you know, immense fortunes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how they've been used throughout... I mean, religions like that throughout history have been used to manipulate people right. and consolidate power. I mean that's what they're that's that's what they do first and foremost, and they do that with these uh, belief systems, and it's getting to a point where a we don't need it anymore. You know we don't need we don't need a, a a supernatural backlash to keep people in line. People the people of the world uh, uh, are okay just as they are. You know, like most of the world is religious, though it's hard to know. It's hard to crunch those numbers because most people right. But the balance of like civilization is not civilized societies are not for the most part held together by the glue of religion. They're held together by you know trusting that justice will be upheld. 
you know, that you will be punished literally if you commit crimes. Right. And that we have economic interdependencies that, uh, you know, keep us in line. Sure. You know, nobody's going to go too far off the reservation because there's, there's an interdependence, yeah. interdependency between, between nations. So I don't see where religion is, is the glue of society anymore, if it ever was, truly. We still have it with, you know, marriage, uh, funerals, and there is that sort of like, I, I'm the kind of guy that benefited from not only the laws of my society, which I obeyed, but also like a spiritual sort of like, don't lie. I benefited from that, like even though it was yeah, tied to But isn't fear. don't lie... Don't lie has more... Lying has more immediate consequences than some ultimate judgment in the afterlife. You yeah, know? okay. I mean, first of all, it's stressful, you know? <laughs> sure. Uh, it takes a toll on you. Yeah. You tell- and I mean, I don't believe you never lied. Right. No, I did lie. Uh, you're right. I'm just trying to... I, it's hard to, for me to defend... Well, I guess what I'm trying to defend is the quiet yearning that I have for some sort of meaning, which may just be a byproduct of my chemistry, that I want the world to mean something. The quiet yearning for meaning is essential. We all have that. And it's the exploration of that that is beautiful. Christianity is not a yearning for meaning. Christianity is a a list of... Of the meaning, and anything that they couldn't figure out, they go, well, that's that's part of the mystery. It's like, well, how come all this shit's that... You could explain... You got fucking, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or whatever. You got this over... You got a talking bush over here. You got this over here. You could explain that pretty fucking well. Yeah. And then all the rest of it is mystery that you didn't feel like filling in. It's just... It's... To me, it's it's a shortcut... And and it's 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 false because it it doesn't. How does it address the quiet meaning? You know, how how or, or quiet yearning, yearning for yeah. meaning. Um, I just feel like it's caused religion has caused a lot more harm and continues to cause harm in the world. No, I agree. Religion can be a terrible thing. But what about like uh, meditation or or. Uh... But meditation is not religious. No, I know. But what about just like spiritual things, non-religious spiritual yearning? Do you have any of that in your life? Are you kind of wondering what this oh, is all yeah. about? Oh, yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, I mean, I don't meditate. I always feel like I should. Sure. Um, but if it's not just meditating, it could just be like being thoughtful on a, a long car ride or whatever. You're, you're, you're looking into it. No. When I'm on a long car ride, I got my fucking Funyuns and I got my Nintendo DS. Why are you driving? I don't think about anything. No, of course I'm. I mean, like, see, I don't understand that contrast. Like, if you're against religion, that means then spirituality goes with that and thoughtfulness goes out with that and morality and philosophy. Of course not. The reason. Organized religions are such potent tools of manipulation is because they play on that yearning for meaning. You're right. But they actually provide more suffering 
than they do answers. You know? Uh, it's hard to crunch the numbers on that claim. I, I, I understand. I can fantasize it either way. I know that there are the people that get a lot out of church. They get community. They get things that aren't even that spiritual. They get community. They get meaning. Community, but the need for meaning, the need for community, those are all needs that can be met without religion. I mean, I would wager that there are a lot more atheists out there than people think, and that there are a lot more people that go to church that don't really give a fuck about it than people think, you know? Yeah, sure. I would... I... And this is an assumption. I... I, Well, I don't know what the minority and majority is, but I don't... I can't imagine that there's an overwhelming majority of people in the world that have these unquestioning beliefs. Sure. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, that, that, that yearning for meaning, that yearning for community, these are needs that, that can be met in ways other than organized religion. Sure. I mean, it's like a joke at this point. They, these religions are, like, insane. They, 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 I, yeah, people go to church. People go to bingo, too. People do all kinds of great community shit. People can enjoy themselves within their communities without these insane organizations. I mean, the fucking church has systematic ways of dealing with raping children. They have a method. They have, like, like the fucking... Like how Target has like the complaint department. Where you go oh stuff. They have a department to deal with the fucking thing. They, I mean, it's insane. The people, I mean, every single like flamboyant pastor that gets up in these mega churches and and has these huge flock, inevitably, in a matter of a few years, is either caught sucking somebody's dick or doing. Meth or engage in some kind of insanity. How many times does it take before you go, wait a minute, these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And in fact, at the highest levels of power in these organizations, their agenda is not the spiritual well-being of their flock, but (laughs) enriching themselves and wielding power and getting off in whatever deviant fucking way they get off because because it it fucking gets their rocks off to go decry behaviors when they know that they're going to go right backstage and engage in those behaviors yes. it's their fucking crazy fetishes yeah, that yeah, are yeah. moving you know the world <laughs> yeah and it's time for it to stop you're an you know? under you're an underrepresented perspective on this show <laughs> You are, and I think what do most people. Say? I think people are going to enjoy it. I, we just don't normally get into this. You're making a lot of valid points, and I just think um, maybe it's me, maybe it's them. I don't know. We tend to steer away from. You're making valid points. It's interesting stuff. I mean, the universe is like we were saying earlier with the with the simulation thing. Yeah, it's as good uh, an explanation as any. We exist. Where are we? Yeah. What is the universe? Right. What. Is it nestled in? How many universes are there? Right. How, how, how does our perception of what reality is match up to what reality is at all? 
I mean, we already know that what we know as the laws of physics breaks down at various points all over the universe, and that's just the universe we live in. You mean like it stops obeying the laws of physics at a certain level? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are things that are infinitely large and things that are infinitely... You know, there are these micro-levels that we have no idea about. Sure. There's macro-levels that we have no idea about. Mm-hmm. We exist on such a narrow band of perception as it is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the colors we perceive, the feelings we perceive, they're just the way our brain interprets yes, light. our sensors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? What do we know? What do we know even in this room that we're sitting in, Yeah. let alone the vast, crushing vacuum of space <laughs> that exists all around us for... for Unimaginable leagues, infinity, perhaps. I mean, but we know that there, there, there is a limit to the universe, right? So, but it's expanding. But it's expanding. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. And one day it'll all come apart. Yeah. And the sun will engulf the earth. Yeah. And then, yeah, burn out. So, I mean, that's just. I mean, it all comes back to asshole soup, I guess, if you wanted to. What, what is the point? We need to just accept where we are, accept what's in front of us, mm-hmm. and work off of that. Because mm-hmm. this other shit is crazy. I mean, yeah, it's great that people go to church for community. I think they'd have just as good a time, you know, going to bingo or having a, you know playing tennis or going to the community pool. Right. But every time they go to church, Bill Maher made this point in Religious, and I agreed with it, they are lending their support, even if that's all they do is go to church. They're lending a credibility and a support to, the, to this base of power for an organization that sucks. You know, and, 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 and reaps misery in the world. I mean, we hate corporations in this country. You know, we go, Walmart sucks and these huge corporations. Well, what's the difference with the church? It holds as much, if not more, sway. You know, it'd be like somebody saying like, oh, I go, I go and like worship at Walmart every Sunday. Mm-hmm. You go, why you go there? They're like, they mistreat people. They're only out for themselves. Right. They, you know... The greeter's raping kids. Yeah. <laughs> what's, like, what's the difference? I, I don't see the difference, yeah. you know? It's very I bet people get more uh, sense of calm and right feeling, you know, with the savings they can discover at Walmart than they do sitting, getting bored in church. You should pitch that to Walmart. <laughs> Walmart, we're bigger than Jesus. <laughs> Come pray, yeah. <laughs> that is wild. That I, I think people are going to enjoy that because, like I say, um, atheists get a bad uh, rap on the show because I never do a very good job uh, defending them or, or explaining their their side of things. So I think this thoughtful, wonder filled, and very kind of outside of the box expression that you just shared is, is very valuable for the show, and I'm, I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you. Do you mind if we end with one? Uh, well, first of all, I should make sex prom. I should look at my text from Curtis before I ask you. The question I'm going to ask you is, do you remember the hardest time you ever laughed? Um, and it can be as a kid and or as an adult. 
Ask John about his fleshlight, how he used to come on the floor of his bathroom and leave for <laughs> no, his kitchen. mother. Kitchen, sorry. One summer when we lived together, he personally beat about 20 mice to death with a shoe. Oh, yeah. Ask about the masturbating neighbor whom he stalked with a flashlight during one of our house parties. Oh, yeah. That was great. We had this great house. I mean, it was disgusting. Were you over there? On 2nd Avenue? No. And 30th Street? Me, Curtis, and his brother lived together. And it was just disgusting. (laughs) I mean, it was a two-bedroom. And Curtis... Curtis's brother and myself put a wall up, or my dad actually did it. He put a a plasterboard wall up in the room to divide it into two separate rooms. So we each lived in, like, a slot. We were, like, Japanese businessmen. (laughs) Like, my room was the width of my bed. uh, With, like, a little space at the foot, no door. Because if there was a door, it would block the hallway. Wow. Um, And it couldn't open in. Uh, We had a floorboard went out. We had mice. We, like we found a dead mouse in the couch one time. Um, it like stunk for days, and we couldn't figure out where it was. And it was just under the cushion. Oh <laughs> this my flat god! Mouse. Oh my god! Uh, and uh, yeah, so there was a time where we were catching mice. We we put out traps, and uh, <laughs> but they're smart. They're super smart. You catch like one or two like young mice in a yeah. generation. Yeah. And then we would just watch them come up, stand on their hind legs, lean against the wall, and just eat out of the trap. Uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. Leaning super like smart. a casual guy super smart. eating yeah. off of the trap. Yeah. Wow. Um, glue traps were easier to catch them, but I always felt bad about just throwing away the traps because then the mice... Like, starved, to death. starved to death. And they dislocate, you know, they pull their shoulders out of the sockets trying to wrench free and stuff. Mm. So I would put them in like a plastic bag. Oh no, why take... did I ask you to tell the story? And you'd bash him with a boot? One time I threw a shoe at a mouse and I think I stunned him and killed him. But I would take like one of those uh, like Arizona iced tea glass bottles. Oh my god. And I would like trace the shape of them so I knew where to hit. And then you just give them like two quick smashes. Oh god. I feel like people need to understand that this is New York and you are being overrun with mice. You're not a sociopath. You're not just killing mice for fun. You had to kill some mice. And you were trying to do it out of mercy. Yeah, no, it wasn't fun. I mean, it was, like, interesting. <laughs> we it's like started weird... with dead animals and we're ending with <laughs> dead animals. You personally killed about 30 mice. No, no, probably, like, five or so. Whacking them. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I, I guess you're saying overrun. I mean, if they're, like, running through the house, yeah, yeah you're sure. overrun. Yeah, right? sure. I mean, you can't... How many mice is not over... How many One, mice is acceptable to be running around yeah, the house? Yeah, zero, probably. Yeah. Um, and then they die in the walls, and it stinks, and... <sighs> uh, yeah. So wow. That wasn't fun. But we had this, like, pat outside patio area, uh, and we'd have these big parties out there. Um, <laughs> our downstairs- this is the, the plus side of the apartment. This is why you had the apartment. You have a patio area. Yeah. Well, it was also perfect for, you know, we'd have people over late at night. We'd watch movies and yeah. each, there was a 24-hour Rite Aid. We'd order food. We'd order, I mean, we we lived, it was my 20s. I'm like, we would order Domino's pizza. Curtis and I would each get a Domino's pizza. <laughs> and they, they had like a medium pizza, medium two-topping with 10 wings or kickers for like twelve ninety nine. So we would each do that deal. 
And then we would split a two liter bottle of Coke and we would just eat the whole fucking thing. We would order from this place, Sarge's, at five in the morning, one of these like Jewish deli type places. They're giving these huge sandwiches for like $18. We would spend like, I mean, just the insanity at like five in the morning. They would come over and bring us these sandwiches, and we'd just get high and watch movies. Yeah. Yeah. And then sleep until three. I mean, the way my life, that's part of the reason I love. I get these little pockets now if I can go to Carl's Jr. And, and yeah. Not, the Carl's Jr. is not even that good. Yeah, just, I know. You want just, that Their advertising is tantalizing to yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Um, so one time we had this party, this big party out <laughs> on the patio. It was like second floor. And you could see across the shaft to the building across the way. Yes. And there was this, there was this chubby Asian guy in there. <laughs> and his couch was like the back was against the window. So we saw him from the back. And he's flipping back and forth between uh, the Robin Bird show. Remember that show? No. Oh, yeah. It's like a public access, like porn. She she was in Debbie Does Dallas. She's like an old porn actress. Okay. Who now like runs shows. Uh-huh. So it was like sort of a sexy but gross public access porn <laughs> show. It wasn't even hardcore. It was just like dance and do weird stuff. Sexy but gross porn show. He was flipping back and forth between the Robin Bird show and Scream Three. And just jacking off. He had his hands in his uh, uh, sweatpants. And he was just clearly jacking off. And everybody in the party was screaming at him. Screaming across the air shaft. Yelling, stop yelling, jerking it. Just yelling like, jerk off, you jerk off. Just screaming. And he was just hearing a party, right? Um, and I had made a sign that said jerk off. And then he... Eventually, I guess, heard it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he turned around, and everybody ducked down behind these planters. Except me. I held this sign. I, I locked eyes with him. Ah! This sign that said, jerk off. Ah! And he, like, froze. And then he flipped off the TV and, like, got out of there and turned off the light. And then I went and got a flashlight. We had one of those big flashlights. And I just, flashlight, I just scanned around in his house. <laughs> like the fucking... Like, you know, like when they show the Terminator future and, like, the oh. hunter-killer drone is, like, scanning the lights yes. around for the resistance? Oh, my God. I just pictured him, like, frozen in the corner, <laughs> watching this searchlight look for him. <laughs> I loved it. You didn't find him, though. He was, he was under the couch or whatever. I didn't care about finding him. I just wanted him to see <laughs> that I was searching for him. That is no shame. The the man you, the man with no shame, growing up completely jerking off on the kitchen, bestowing this shame on this chubby Asian guy. But in my view, for fun. I mean, I have shame. I was always a chubby kid. I was always, you know, embarrassed and made fun of and uncomfortable. But. Everybody feels that, you know? No, I know. It was so... It's so fun. You, What I mean by that is you weren't like the religious right being like, how dare you abuse your body? You're, no. You are the ambassador of shame, shaming someone else and just enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain amount of frattiness that is good. Yeah. I mean, fratty... Like, frat boys, people are down on them, and they do suck. Because when you think of a frat boy, you think of an ignorant person... Without, who's not giving it any thought. Yeah. And he's just taking this, like, sort of dumb, prurient pleasure from, from, you know, hazing people and, 
Sure. Take but, them down a peg. And, uh, you know, on a certain level, that sucks if there's all there is. But sometimes a little bit of that, you know, yeah. a little bit of ribaldry. Yeah. We are in danger of getting very prude in this society. Yeah. And very, like, was that offensive? Was that offensive? Yeah. Did somebody say something out of turn? And guess what, guys? If nobody ever says anything offensive, if nobody ever, like, gooses somebody else or, yeah. or yes. fucks around, right? comedy's not going to be that funny. Yeah. You know? You can go watch, you know, tune to the whatever stand-up comedy they have playing on a loop in the airplane radio station. Yeah. And that's going to be comedy. You right, know. right, right, right. It's whatever, you know, these fucking... You know, and sometimes you just want a Terminator to your your chubby Asian neighbor, yeah, and live some life. I mean, it's just fun and put some oxygen back in our blood. You gotta have a good time. Fucking a man, you know this is a free podcast. People get to hear that story for free. Really, you're not charging for this, <laughs> man. I want to thank you so much for doing. Thank it. you. Thank How you long is in this? the home in your home? It's two hours and ten minutes. Jesus, we really did it. They go long. Your, your podcasts go long though. I like. I like. Uh, it's over when it's over. People listen to the whole thing. Well, let's do a little test. If you listen to the whole thing, post in the comments. Justin Bieber goes commando, and you get a you get a prize, and you get a prize, which is your sex doll. <laughs> yeah, you get my old sex doll, which he will not be cleaning because <laughs> I'm not here to play maid. <laughs> we end the show with the guest saying, uh, "Keep it crispy." If you wouldn't mind saying, "Keep it crispy," keep it crispy. <laughs> is that good? That was a good one. Really, that was a really good one. I also want to point out that you had a hedgehog puppet on. The entire interview. Or oh, a porcupine. Yeah. I think it's porcupine. Yeah, I think it's porcupine. <laughs> Thanks for doing it, man. Thank Sincerely. you. All right. Love talking to you. I love talking to you. You're a fresh-faced man. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 